Welcome to the podcast from Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Who, who remembers back in the 80s when uh, you, you wanted to travel overseas, who remembers what it was like to get through the doors of an airport and onto a plane? Come on, put your hands up if you ever travelled you know, in, in the 80s. Who remembers how easy it was? You know, you, you, you simply, all you had to do was, uh, was rock up to, to the airport and uh, as, long as, as long as you had a passport and, and it matched the ticket that you had in your hand, you, you could just jump on the plane. You know, it didn't matter if you had a pack of durries and a, and a, and a lighter and, and you were smoking as you walked through the doors. That was fine. You just whacked them in, in your pocket and you, you could light up, you know, right there and then. And, uh, and, and nobody cared. Just kept walking through the doors of the airport. If you had a couple of leftovers from the night before and you already had a little bit of time before you jumped on the plane, no dramas. Just chuck them in your pocket and, uh, and, and jump on the plane. No one would ever know. And if it wasn't a twist top, no problem. You had your pocket knife in your pocket and you could just, uh, you'd be ready to open up whatever you needed to open up. If you needed to do some work at the other end, you could carry whatever your tools that you needed to and you could just walk straight through the doors. It was easy. It was really easy to get through the doors of an airport and into a terminal and onto the doors of a plane. It was easy. It's hard to actually remember how easy it was because today it is so much harder. You know, to get through the doors of an airport and onto a plane, first you've got to come up against some ugly bloke with a stick in his hand. They're always bald and they've got a goatee. They look a little bit scary. And you kind of, you're there with all your gear and, you know, as they, as they wave the wand over you, you know, you hear that noise and you don't even consider, you know, taking your bottles on the plane anymore and you make sure, you know, that you've got your lighter, you know, ready to chuck out and you don't dare, dare smoke. I remember when our next door neighbour, who was a... Uh, who was an airline pilot with TAA or ANSET, one of those, back in the 80s, he, uh, and he's a chain smoker. I remember when they told him he wasn't allowed to smoke in the cockpit anymore. I, I was sure we, we were gonna see a plane just crash into the Pacific Ocean halfway to LA. I was not sure how he was gonna cope. But they put new restrictions on, on what you could do as you went, went through the doors. But it wasn't only things like that from now, you know, there's all sorts of things that as, a, as you go through the detector, now you can't take your wallet. You know, it's pretty important. You've got to get that out. They want to check that. Your phone needs to be checked. There's no way you can take your, uh, your pocket knife on board anymore. My dad has lost three pocket knives at, uh, with airport security guards. He complains every time, but he never remembers. You know, I actually remember... 
um, you know, going through security at, uh, at Parliament House one time. You know, me and uh, AG, we used to run this uh, youth group down in Sydney and uh, we used to do these crazy things like these mystery bus tours and we never knew, uh, we never told the parents where we were going and uh, I got no idea why they let their kids come. But anyway, one time we went to the snow, in the space of a day, we went to the snow from Sydney and then to Parliament House and this ugly looking bloke at Parliament House is going over everybody, you know, like, like this and the thing went off its Richter and uh, Tony Good, who was one of the 16 year old boys on our trip, you know, pulls out a hunting knife like this. And, and, and all the security rushed to him. He said, what are you bringing that into Parliament House for? And his excuse was, oh, I've just been to the snow with Jason Two Dogs. That was AG's nickname back then. And uh, they're just looking at him going, mate, you can't bring that in here. And you can't bring it on a plane. There's a whole bunch of things these days that you can't bring on a plane. Have you ever tried to get a kid's toy gun onto a plane? I have. And they, uh, doesn't matter whether it's a Christmas present he's just got from his grandparents in Sydney, they won't let it on the plane. That's about as much damage as you can do. But, uh, you know, you've got to get your laptop out of your bag and then you've got to get, you know, your iPad, you've got to get your Kindle. And uh, then just in case you didn't want to smell the whole way to LA, you've got to get your deodorant out. And then it's not just the leftover beers from the night before, but it's kind of like water, the very source of life. You are no longer able to bring onto a plane. Just when you think you've got everything that you possibly could, you know, piled up into the, the, the trays, you put your arms out again and the guy says, would you just mind taking your shoes off, sir? And off come your shoes and then you think, finally, for sure, now there's nothing left. And he says, take your jacket off as well. And you think, any moment now, I'm going to strip down and I'm going to be nude, but uh, I'm going to get my way through the, through the uh, secure. And once again, it goes off. And now I'm going to take my belt off. And there's every chance that now my pants are going to fall down. But uh, what? Oh, that microphone's in the way of my belt. Oh, that was a dumb one. I didn't think about that. I clipped my microphone onto my belt. You know, who, who's done this? You know, you're standing there and finally the ugly bloke with a stick in his hand, he's happy with you and he waves you through and you're standing there and you've got trays of stuff in front of you and you're struggling to put everything back on. You finally get everything back on. Then another guy says, we want to test you to see if you've been making any explosives this morning. And then you get through that barrier and then you get to the gate and not so much in Australia, but in other countries, you've got to do it all over again. Can you just thank my security guard for me this morning? You know, we've, in the last 20 or 30 years, we've, uh, the governing bodies around the world have created new barriers and new restrictions to people entering the doors of an airport, getting through a terminal and onto a plane. Now, back in the 50s, like the real 50s, like 50 AD, in Galatia, there wasn't a whole lot of airport travel going on. 
but there was some governing bodies of the time in the church who were doing the same thing in the church. That they were creating barriers and restrictions to make it more difficult for people to get through the doors of a church. What what once was easy for people to walk in and to receive the saving grace of Jesus, these new governing bodies, you know, were, were making it more difficult. They were putting restrictions in place. They were creating more barriers to stop certain people with certain behaviours getting through the doors of the church. And when the Apostle Paul hears about it, he is hopping mad. And he writes about it in this letter to the Galatians. It says, when Cephas, Galatians chapter two, when Cephas, and Cephas here is Peter, same person, just different name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I, said, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see some context here. God had given Peter a dream some years before. Peter, like Paul, was a Jew by birth. And he'd given Peter a dream one time. At that stage, he thought the Gospel was only for Jews. But he has this dream where this blanket comes down from heaven and the whole deli section is on there. All, every bit of meat that you can imagine. And in this dream, God says to Peter, go and eat. And Peter, being a good law-abiding Jew, says, I could not do that. And God says to him, Peter, it's good gear. Go and eat it. Enjoy it all. Get it into you. And he realises in this moment, in this dream, God says, you know what was once unclean, I've now made clean. Peter, Peter understands in this very dramatic way that the Gospel is now for the Gentiles. Those who were once unclean have now been made clean through Jesus. And he preaches the Gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. And they put their faith in Jesus and they receive His grace and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he realises now that there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, that all of us need the Gospel. All of us are accepted into God's family through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Peter knows from that moment that Jesus had opened the door for everyone to enter a new community of grace. That's what Jesus had done through His work on the cross, that He'd opened the door for everyone to enter into this new community of grace. And Peter had welcomed uncircumcised Gentiles to the church to eat at his table until the circumcision party came along 
and said, if they're not circumcised, you can't eat with them. They can't have the same fellowship in the church. If they're not abiding by Jewish dietary principles, they're not welcome in, in fellowship. I often wonder, how did they know? Have you ever thought about that? You know, was, was there kind of someone standing at the door with a bald head and a goatee and a, and a circumcision stick and kind of just, you know, waving it over them and, uh, and, and just, just seeing it, whether they were circumcised or not? You know, was there, was there a, a stick that they waved and says, oh, this guy's eating bacon this week? You know, and it just kind of it went off. I mean, I'm not sure exactly how they knew. But Peter, who had, you know, had this dream and had started to welcome people into the church, welcome all people from all backgrounds, this new governing body came along and said, no, new rules. If they've not been circumcised and if they're not eating according to Jewish law, then they can't, we can't eat together at the table. They can't be welcomed through the doors like everybody else. This governing body was putting new restrictions and new barriers in place to stop people, to make it more difficult for people to come in the doors of the church and to come into the family of God. And Paul, when he hears about it, he shirt fronts Peter. He says it to his face. He says, Peter, you keep doing this, you stand condemned. Peter, you keep doing this, you're out of line with the gospel. These are strong words. Just think about who he's saying this to. This is Peter who Jesus says, you know, your new name is Rock and on this rock I will build my church. It's kind of like saying to the Pope, you're out of line with the Gospel. You know, you've, you've got to get yourself together. Now we might want to say that, but it's a gutsy thing that Paul is saying. And poor Peter, to his credit, takes it on the chin. And he hears this rebuke from Paul. And Peter, a little bit later in Acts chapter 15, when the Council of Jerusalem comes together to actually make some decisions, the real governing body comes together to make some decisions on, on this issue. Peter says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that, we are, that they are saved, just as they are. Let me say that again. It is, through, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. We're all in the same boat. We're all dependent on grace. And then he agrees with Paul when they do make a decision, when the governing body decide to remove all of the barriers, all of the restrictions to, to stop people walking through the doors of the church. In Acts 15 verse 19, he says, it is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult. Can we just say that together? Should not make it difficult. I'm going to, it sounds difficult, but let's just say it all together. Should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to, get, turning to God. Don't make it difficult. Don't put any barriers in place. Don't create restrictions. He says, I don't want you to eat from food sacrificed to idols. Don't drink blood. Kind of good idea. 
and don't sleep with someone that's not your wife. And other than that, walk through the doors. Receive grace, enter the community of grace. You see, when a church creates barriers to make it difficult for people to turn to God, it's out of line with the gospel. If we make behaviour or background or birthplace or bank balance a barrier to God, we are out of step with the gospel. It's why every week someone says from this stage, everyone who walks through those doors is welcome. No matter where you're from, no matter what questions you got, everyone who walks through those doors is welcome because we are called to be a people who do not create barriers to God, who do not restrict people coming to God, who, who do not make it difficult for people coming to God, but we are to be a church that welcomes people through our doors, that welcomes everyone through our doors to discover the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen this morning? That's how you keep in step with the Gospel. That's what Jesus did. He opened the door for everyone to enter this new community of grace. And Paul goes on to say, the only barrier to enter communion with God is unbelief. It's a lack of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2 verse 15. It says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You know, Paul, Paul brings this new word into Galatians and, and Galatians is quite likely, you know, the first of the New Testament books written. So it's this new word that, that's coming into the language of the church for the first time. And it's a word that is central to the Gospel. It's a word that's central to this book of Galatians. It's a word that's central to Christianity. And it's the word justified. Justification, it's legal language. It's the opposite of condemned. It's the opposite of guilty. You know, it, it means innocent. It means righteous. And, and Paul here, it, it, and it's a, it's a human need that's just as pressing as it was 2,000 years ago. Because Paul is, is outlining the, the problem, we have a God who is righteous, who is holy, who is perfect. And us humans, no matter what, our birthplace or our background are unrighteous and unholy and guilty before Him. And He lays out two different ways that we can try and be justified. We can try and be justified by doing good works. It, it, it's what was happening creeping back into the church in Galatia, but it's still the religion of the street today. It's the, it's the pull your socks up and behave better and God will think you're okay, religion. And I wanna kind of depict for you this morning just how ridiculous this religion is. Because it never, 
doesn't matter who you are, it never looks good to pull your socks up. But, but that's what, that's what the people coming into Galatia are telling them to do. They're just saying, if you'll just pull your socks up a bit higher, if you'll just behave a bit better, then God will be impressed and you'll be okay with Him. You'll be, made, you'll be justified. You'll be righteous before Him. Paul says this in another place in Romans chapter three. He says, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We actually become conscious of how ridiculous we look. You see that the problem is, no one who's ever lived bar one has ever fully obeyed the law. Paul says, us Jews, we've been trying to do it for, for, for hundreds of years and none of us could do it. But why, why are we putting this forward as, as, as a way that these new Gentiles who are, who are new to the church should be actually made right with God, should be justified before God? It's never worked for us. How's it gonna work for them? And, and Paul just keeps banging on about it. He says the other alternative to justification through good works, the other alternative to a pulling your socks up kind of religion is justification through saving faith in Christ. You see, Jesus came into the world to live and to die. Through His life, He is the only one who perfectly obeyed the law. And through His death, He died for our disobedience to the law so that we could live in relationship with God. He's saying the only way to be justified before God, a holy God, is to acknowledge our sin, to repent of living our way, to turn to God and to put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us. And he beats this drum three times. Firstly, he does it generally. He generalises. He says, we know that amen is not justified by works of the law. He's saying any man, doesn't matter who he is, we kind of know that he can't be justified by good works. Then he personalises it. He says, we, us Jews, we realise this doesn't work. And so we put our faith in Jesus Christ to save us because none of us could be justified by works of the law. He generalises, he personalises, then he universalises. At the end of verse 16, he says, by the works of the law, no man, no one, no flesh of any type will ever be justified. It might be the religion of the street, but it's ludicrous to think we could impress a holy God by our good works. I just want you to imagine, I did this for a bit of dramatic effect this morning because I, I want you to imagine, I want you to picture yourself before God on His throne, the holy God of the universe, the God who created everything. And you're standing before His throne on judgment day. And if, if, if you're trusting on being justified by good works, you're gonna be standing here looking about as ridiculous as this. You go, God, look at me. <laughs> look at what I've done. 
I pulled my socks up and I behaved better. Have a look at me. You're gonna look about this ridiculous if that's what you're trusting in before the holy God of the universe. And Paul's saying there's another option. You you can actually get on your knees and, and not attempt to display your good works before God at all who simply says they're filthy rags. And you can point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. I'll tell you the really good news. I reckon before you even get to do that, Jesus is saying, Jace is with me. It's all good. He's not guilty. He's justified. I don't know which one you want to put your trust in. You want, you want to try pulling your socks up? It might be popular on the street today, but you're going to look ridiculous standing before Almighty God. Or do you want to put your faith in what Jesus has done on the cross for you? Paul beats the drum three times. Martin Luther, when he's commenting on this passage of Scripture, says, this is the truth of the Gospel. It's also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it unto others and beat it into their heads continually. Jesus did all the work for everyone to have a new experience of grace. Nothing to do with your good works. It's all about the work that He did. I'm trying to beat it into your head today in the nicest possible way. If you're not getting the message through song, through prayer, through Scripture, through my preaching, then maybe you might get it through art. I was uh, privileged a couple of uh, months ago now to to see that Alistair has actually been sitting in our pews drawing our sermons for the last few years. As we preach, he's drawing, just reflecting his heart for God on paper in a different way. And I love just looking through them, just remembering the truth of Scripture that we preached, seen in drawings. And so I asked him just to draw something of the message of Galatians 2, for us this morning. So thank you, Alistair. Can I give you a microphone in place of a paintbrush just for a minute? Mate, just uh, this, I recognise this is kind of going to get finished through the morning as we keep going, but just explain just a little bit of the picture that's in your heart as you draw on this. Yeah, thanks, Jason. So that um... no, that's not working at all. It's on, David. Try again. How's that? Yeah. Yeah, good morning. Um, Two, two things about this, I guess, I just wanted to sort of briefly highlight. Firstly, if you do what I do and doodle, then scientifically you remember 32.5% more than people who don't doodle. <laughs> so next time you see someone doodling and they don't look like they're paying attention, they're actually smarter than you think. <laughs> so just remember that. Um, look, this is, so as Jason said, this is just a, a sort of big version of my visual sermon notes, I suppose. Um, and just reflecting on Galatians and that, that 
journey, a couple of things really struck me. One is there's the choice we've got to make in terms of grace and accepting grace. And what you see on the left here is, is just a motif representing um, barcodes and representing that really sort of transactional kind of relationship we can have with God if we don't decide to, to live through grace um, and by faith. And, and, and there's a journey here that's, that's going to emerge through here of just coming to the cross and actually, you know, finding that transactional journey really, really hard because it just doesn't work. Um, and the other point, I suppose, reflecting on this beyond the actual picture itself is the process because, you know, one of the things I'm kind of interested in, in in the work that I do and various other things that I do is the difference between process and product. And sometimes we can be so focused on the product at the end that we, f- we forget the good process on the way through um, and, and forgetting to make that choice and, and live by grace. So um, I guess that's the summary. Hey, can we just thank Alistair this morning? Enjoy. As he continues, you might want to come back at 10 and see it all finished, up to you. You know, part of, uh, part of the argument that uh, the, the governing group were bringing, you know, into God, Paul's gospel of salvation by faith in Christ alone was that if good works was not the basis for justification, if it wasn't just, you know, transacting your way to God and just, you know, following all, all the rules and making sure you've done enough to get to God. If, if that, you know, wasn't the way to make yourself right with God, they were saying, won't sin run rampant? And Paul says, absolutely not. He says, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. This is the verse you probably know of this chapter. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Paul's saying, why would I wanna keep on sinning? That the life I live now in Jesus is so much better than the life I used to live. Why would I wanna rebuild what I've destroyed? I crucified my old life with Jesus of just trying, with God, of just trying to be good enough. I put that to death with Jesus on the cross. And I now live a new life by faith in His love, by faith in the Son of God. He lives in me by His Spirit. Yeah, Paul is describing here a relationship with Jesus that is intimate, it's empowering. It's life-giving. It's better than sinning. Can I just encourage us this morning, the key to overcoming sin and temptation is not willpower. It's not self-improvement. It's not hiding away in a monastery. You know, the key to overcoming sin and temptation in your life is actually to enjoy a life-giving, empowering, intimate relationship with Jesus every day. 
You see, you sin because sin makes a promise to you. It promises to bring you pleasure and and your flesh loves pleasure. It craves pleasure and sin promises to make your life better, more satisfying, more filled with hope, more filled with pleasure. That's why you sin. You don't sin out of duty. None of you woke up during the week and said, I better do some sinning today. It's my duty. You don't sin out of duty. You sin because it promises to make your life better by giving you pleasure. And to the degree that you believe that promise will be the degree to which you give in to sin. And the only way the promises of the pleasure of sin will be broken in your life is by the power of a superior pleasure. And His name is Jesus. And the way we experience Him is through saving faith. And throughout history, not just in Galatia, but in all churches of all times, we've had this hard time of working out, you know, how we, how we get ourselves right with God over here through saving faith in Jesus. And then how over here in a completely other way, we, we actually try and work out how to stop sinning, how to overcome sinning. And Paul is saying, it's one and the same. He says, the nature of your relationship with God through the saving faith of Jesus Christ is to be so satisfying in nature that it makes sin lose its power. This is what Paul's discovered. And he says, well, I keep sinning, absolutely not. The life I live by faith in Jesus is so much better than the old life I put to death. Can I encourage you this morning, wherever you go to enjoy God, go there often. Don't, don't restrict yourself. Don't think it's not important. Wherever you go and you most enjoy the presence of God, it brings you most pleasure. Go there often. It's what will defeat the power of sin in your life. You see, Jesus invites everyone to enjoy this new life of grace that Paul had discovered for himself. But you must accept the invitation through saving faith in Jesus. And and although the church decided to remove all barriers, restrictions from people coming into the church, there was still an external sign that you'd put your old life to death and you'd begun this new life of grace through the saving faith in Jesus. And it wasn't a sign where you had to cut something off. It was a sign where you actually immerse yourself into the life of Jesus. You immerse yourself into His love and into His grace. The life you lived, you lived in Him. And that sign was baptism. And it was something that was open to everybody. And the symbol was, as you go down into the water, it symbolises being crucified with Christ. It's putting your old life to death and your sins washed away. And as you come up out of the water, it's a picture of the new life with the risen Jesus. Where you enjoy His presence 
He's giving you new life. And Paul describes in this letter, baptism as just a a non-negotiable, a no-brainer. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptised into Christ and you've clothed yourselves with Christ. Now through history, the church has argued about how much water should be involved, what age it should happen. And it's actually become a barrier and a restriction to people coming into the community of God. And that's not why Jesus asked us to be baptised. I personally believe that the picture of baptism in Scripture is of an adult expressing their faith in the saving work of Jesus and being immersed into His life and into His love and rising again to a new life. But the mode of baptism should never be the barrier, it should never be the restriction for people coming into the community of God. The Scripture's clear that we must be baptised one way or another if we're to obey Jesus. We come up with many excuses not to be baptised. Maybe some of you here today are saying, I'm not good enough. I still struggle with sin. Once I've got everything sorted, all my sins sorted in my life, then I'll get baptised. I hope this morning we've undone that excuse for you. I hope Paul's undone that excuse for you. You're never gonna pull your socks up high enough. Baptism's actually the sign that You're never gonna be good enough. Do you actually need a saviour? Some of you are making the excuse, I'm not good at public speaking. There's a big group of people to speak in front of here. Lots of people. And look, as much as I'd love you to share your testimony in that baptistry, if you can't do it, all you gotta do is say, I do. If you've been married, you've already had some practice at that. If you're not yet married, you. It'll be practice. But there is a public component to baptism. It's not just an individual act between you and God. It's actually the public way of saying, I am part of this community. I need a Saviour. His Name is Jesus. And I wanna be part of this community of grace. There is a public component to it. Maybe some of you are saying, I don't know enough. I don't read the Bible enough. I feel like I should know more before I get baptised. Let me keep it very simple for you. If you know that God is holy and you are not and you need someone to save you from your sin and you believe that Jesus lived without sin and He died for your sin to make you right before God, you know enough. That's all you need to know. Baptism is the first step of faith in the saving work of Jesus. There'll be other things to learn on the journey, but that's all you need to know right now. And it's all you need to believe to be baptised. Now I guarantee there's no one here making the excuse that uh, I'm gonna get wet when I get baptised because you Baptists use a lot of water and uh, I don't have a towel. I'm pretty confident no one is using that excuse. We have a tradition here at Gateway just once a year where we speak to all of the excuses and we invite people to be obedient to Jesus and receive the saving grace of Jesus into their lives by being baptised and we give you a towel to overcome that excuse and every other excuse. 
I want to encourage you this morning, whether you're here for the first time or the fourth time and all you do know is that you need a Saviour, His Name is Jesus and you want to receive Him and you want to be baptised. This is the first time you've ever made this decision. As we sing this final song, I'd love you to come and get a towel and just get one of our pastoral team to pray for you and pray with you as you make the decision to get baptised in the next few weeks or whether you've been here for a long time and you actually made the decision to follow Jesus a long time ago, but you've still got some excuses. I'm still struggling with sin. I haven't got it all together. You know, I don't, still don't know enough. This morning, it's time. It's time to put all of those excuses to bed. Come down the front, grab a towel and say, I'm in. I need a Saviour and His Name is Jesus and I want this community to know. I want everyone to know I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm gonna be justified by faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and we're gonna stand and sing. God, this morning, this morning I thank You for the invitation for all of us to walk through those doors and to be saved, to receive Your grace, to live in Your grace, to enjoy Your grace from now and all eternity. God, this morning, I pray that You would just give courage and conviction to some people here this morning to take this first step of baptism, that they would put their faith in You, that they would acknowledge, Jesus, that You are their Saviour. God, this morning, this morning, God, I know you're just gonna welcome them with open arms. God, I know there'll be celebration in this place as they take that step. God, would you encourage them this morning? I pray in Jesus' Name. Amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet. We're gonna sing a song that says, Jesus, you've won me. Jesus, you've done all the work for me. Jesus, living with you is so much better than my old life. This morning, if you wanna make the decision to dive in, to be part of the love and the life of Jesus, to make that public declaration that I'm following Jesus. Can I encourage you as we sing this song, just come down, grab a towel. There'll be someone here from our pastoral team. It's gonna get our pastoral team to come forward right now and uh, just walk past, grab a towel. Let someone pray for you this morning. Come on, just come. Some of you know this is you. You've been making excuses for too long. Just start to come right now before Scotty even starts to sing. We're gonna pray for you. You're gonna be blessed. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ or would like us to pray for you, please go to gatewaybaptist.com.au and let us know.